0: You're listening to we, 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 the Aether Podcast with host Adam Evans, within and without. Welcome,
1: Jason. Nice to have this chat. Uh, just to kick things off. Do you mind just introducing yourself? What it is you're involved in? And what it is you do on a day to day basis? Uh, just for anyone that's not familiar. Uh, again, I'll do a brief introduction at the beginning of this particular episode. However, it's going to be so brief and. Uh, I'll include all links and resources in the description of this episode on YouTube and on iTunes. So, if anyone's interested, they can always just go down there and, and follow up and you know, visit your links that people from there. So, but please uh, do introduce yourself if you don't mind.
0: Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Slot. I'm an assistant professor at, uh, at the Ohio State University. Uh, I'm in the Department of Plant Pathology, and my research has to do with fungi and the evolution of fungi in the environment. How they Interact with other organisms, for instance. And particularly, we spend a lot of time thinking about the chemicals that fungi make, uh, how they've evolved to make those chemicals, and the fungi and the chemicals that fungi break down, so that they can uh, effectively interact with plants and insects and other organisms.
1: Perfect. And I, I was reading up on some of your research recently, and you have proposed uh, or horizontal gene transfer do you mind just expanding on that a little bit
0: sure this is this is sort of a, a growing interest in my field where we're looking at a phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer which has been known quite uh, quite a bit from bacterial world you'll you'll notice a lot of work has been done on uh, some bacteria acquiring the ability to make or to degrade antibiotics or to be resistant to antibiotics from other bacteria that are not the same species necessarily. And we've been looking at how fungi actually uh, do this same thing, uh, but uh, they do it much more rarely, and it's kind of interesting what we find at the times that they do acquire new abilities from other fungi, other species of fungi, by taking their DNA from them.
1: And how do they do that exactly?
0: Actually, it's not really well understood. Um, We know very well how bacteria exchange DNA, but uh, this is one of our main open questions. We have some ideas. We think that sometimes fungi, they form resting stages, uh, resting structures when they're hanging out in the soil. They can be really resistant to the weather, to environmental conditions, but they can also be susceptible to breaking open and having the insides of their cells perhaps exposed to the DNA that's around them. So if you can imagine they're living in an environment or they're resting in an environment where a particular skill, a particular genetic skill is useful, uh, they could, if they acquire that by copying that DNA, they can then uh, have an extra advantage living in that particular environment. And those skills can be lots of different things. It could be the ability to produce... Something that poisons the main competitor or the ability to break down something that a particular tree sends out into the the soil. Um, But, yeah, as far as how it happens, uh, it's a lot of speculation. Some people are thinking because fungi have this ability to uh, fuse with other fungi temporarily, or sometimes if they're close enough uh, relatives, they can actually completely fuse their hyphae, their mycelium, with other fungi. So people are thinking that maybe temporary fusions are a way that bits of nuclei can be uh, exchanged between different species. But it's, it's really one of our big open questions is how. So mainly what we've been doing, because we work at very much at the information level. We work on the computer with genomic sequence that we that we get from DNA that we extract from fungi, uh, we're really looking at the results of what's happening. So we'll see, we have different ways of probing for DNA that's been transferred from one species to another. And then we have programs that allow us to kind of figure out what those genes are doing, what they, the functions they might have.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool. So now I, I was actually catching a little bit of your conversation with Brian on the Psychedelics Today episode, and it touched on the impact of insects and animals. Now, do you think that they would have any role or play any role in, the, in that transferring process that, that kind of fusing those, uh, fusing them basically together? Like, is, 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 are they breaking anything apart, transferring, like carrying anything with them to other areas? Or is it simply due to environmental factors like weather and climate, and things like that?
0: Uh, I think insects and other vector organisms definitely play a role. Um, for one thing, two fungi can live in the same insect in their guts, or an insect could be carrying one fungus in its gut and eating another insect. So there has been a lot of evidence of uh, insect-associated fungi acquiring DNA from the food that the insect is— or. I'll take that back. That that evidence is actually coming from uh, herbivore, like mammalian herbivore, like cow-associated fungi acquiring DNA from bacteria that's in the food, for instance. Um, so they're definitely playing a role by putting different fungi in contact with each other, but whether or not they're actually involved in the transfer of DNA is kind of hard to speculate about. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is something I've sort of like been toying with over the past several months. Now, fungi as having an intelligence of its own. Do you think that it's possible that they, that, that the actual fungi itself in certain areas of the world could be manipulating its, its scent, flavor, anything in particular that would, that would draw certain insects to it? That, so it would have kind of a set plan for itself, an expansion or, or you know, uh, of, of its DNA. it wants it, it needs a vessel. It needs something to help it around do you think that it's possible that that it has this level of intelligence where it's actually able to modify itself either on a molecular level to actually then be then consumed by those insects or animals or anything else like I know that there are some plants that do this and they can change their taste and flavor and
0: it's almost like they're communicating with each other in a vast network do you think that's the case for fungi as well Uh. Well I tend to not necessarily ascribe, you know, higher intelligence to the fungi. Not so much but, high,
1: it, but just any level of it impact.
0: really depends on how you define intelligence, right? I mean acquiring stimuli from the environment and then make some sort of decision made uh after that and then acting upon that decision. I think that's sort of maybe a basic definition of intelligence, and in that sense, fungi are definitely responding to stimuli from their environment. But I would, I would consider it more that they're living out programs. So that like the developmental process of a fungus is, is sort of very well predetermined and can be uh, changed at the genetic level. For instance, if you think of the zombie and fungi, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them.
1: Yeah, yeah I am. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah,
0: They have um, a really bizarre...
1: If are familiar, please do elaborate.
0: Yeah, so the um, the zombie ant fungi, there's there's many species of them, and they their phenotype, the way that they uh, show themselves to the world for what they are, is largely how they make the ant that they infect behave. So they will infect the ant and... The ant will have mild changes to its behavior, and eventually, the, the ant will be manipulated through chemicals and through uh, other ways that the, the fungal mycelium are interacting with the nervous system. It's not very well understood, but they induce the ant to climb up to a very specific spot in the forest canopy, for instance, that is the optimum spot for that fungus to disperse its spores. At the time that the little mushroom sprouts out, the mushroom-like structure sprouts out at the back of the, the zombified ants head, which is a, common, a common way that you see that. But that's a very predictable response, and, and there's not a lot of necessarily a lot of room for you know, changing how it happens. So I wouldn't consider it necessarily an intelligence as much as a program that has certain inputs and a very precise outcome.
1: Mm-hmm. In that case, it's almost acting like a parasite, really. Um, it would be considered a parasite. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. I know that uh, there's some uh, parasites that can infect cats and stuff like it. Almost sounds very similar to to that and how it would completely take over. And, and I'm sure it even relates to human gut health and, and whatnot. How you know you can. You're, you're, I mean, many people consider the gut to be like the second brain. And it, it, I'm sure, plays a huge factor in people's decision-making processes uh, without them really knowing, completely being unaware of it. Um, so this actually ties in with the, the the next question I had, which was in relation to the Tokyo slime mold railway system. Did you, are you familiar with that?
0: Uh, that, that story, I think, was from 2010, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is another another way that fungi, and slime molds aren't really fungi. They're actually amoeba. They're colonial amoebae. Amoeba. Uh, But they're also considered a prototype of intelligence, a prototypical intelligence, uh, because they're able to acquire certain stimuli from the environment, whether it's uh, volatile molecules coming off of a food source or uh, boundaries that they run up against. And they're able to solve mazes, for instance. So it's really fun to watch a microorganism on a macroscopic level uh, sort of make decisions and overcome challenges. And what you're referring to is how sort of Tokyo was reproduced on a map and a slime mold, Vicerum polycephalum, was put on that map with little cities represented by probably oat grains. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember exactly how they uh, how they did that, but then the optimal rail systems or the optimal transportation networks were reconstructed by by the slime mold so it, it's really interesting I'm not sure how absolutely useful it is for reconstructing our own cities but it's it's interesting to think about
1: yeah to me that that indicates some level of intelligence again getting back to how you would define intelligence and I think you- did so earlier quite nicely it's it's like taking information from the environment and in that case they were putting sources of food if i'm not mistaken and uh, it was almost like building new pathways to those food sources it's really interesting to me um so if you don't mind what is the oldest i'm not too familiar with this but what is the oldest uh mushroom fossil that's actually been found um i think you covered it as well in psychedelics Today podcast but uh you don't mind
0: just uh illuminating listening. Uh that's a good question. I know there there was a recent discovery that set the date back maybe another 10 million years, and I'm blanking on that one. The um some of the oldest ones are about hundred and ten million years. And mostly they're they're mushrooms. They're your typical cap and stem mushrooms that we're all familiar with. And they're they're preserved in amber. Uh, and So that goes back to uh, Amber formations which are formed from sap of trees that Sort of fossilized, in a, a layer of the earth that represents about a hundred million years ago 90 to 110 million years ago It's exposed in Burma. So it's these Burmese amber formations But there was another one called uh, it, it was actually a, a true fossil in Chert, and I'm just blanking on what that is now, but it it dates back to Pangea, so it's it, It's definitely much older um, So so mushrooms go pretty far back, but fungi go much further back than that, so We know that they invaded land in about 400 million years ago uh, So they, they already existed maybe up to a billion years ago in the oceans before they, along with plants, made their way up onto land and started to form terraform earth into and a complex ecosystem.
1: I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the stone date theory uh, proposed by Terrence McKenna. And Absolutely. I want to get your take on it. I want to get your take on what sort of involvement you, you think that any sort of mycelium or mushroom would have played in the evolutionary development of either communication or even just just intellectual development I mean the fact that the the human brain grew so significantly in such a relatively short amount of time I I always go back to that and I just I just wonder how that would have actually taken place and and the only like I assume this is why Terence came to this conclusion but like these mycelium were around as you just alluded to like so many millions of years ago that it's it's almost like i mean humans are so curious why wouldn't they just try something out and then if they experience it's almost like they get uh you know i've had psilocybin mushrooms and, and whatnot it's almost like you get a like a clean slate like um a, 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 so you know your, your perception can be a little bit different than it was prior to you know consuming those things so i just want to get your take on that and, and how much of a role if at all do you think that the mycelium played in the,
0: in the evolution of, of human brain, especially? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's fascinating to speculate about. Uh, I, I don't think there's direct evidence of a role. I mean, I think Terrence McKenna would probably
1: agree there's not a lot of... But uh, he did, he did it, have some pretty good theories that, you know, it's definitely uh, interesting to explore, or at least thought experiments. You know.
0: Well, I think so... Yeah, I haven't thought about this in a little while, but uh I think of the potential role for psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, they, they were definitely there throughout all of hominid evolution. They were they were there growing on dung mushrooms when the megafauna were walking the earth sixty million years ago. So so they were hanging around in the environment where people were coming down from the trees and migrating across the early savannas, the grasslands, and they would have been eating them. Uh, The question is, how much can you influence evolution uh, through the behavior modifications, the, uh, I don't know exactly how you describe the, the visions that psychedelic mushrooms can cause what I would speculate, if they do play a role, they they sort of opened up a space where evolution could occur. They opened up, they set up a demand. For example, so imagine an earlier hominid with a smaller brain uh, was using its brain to its maximum potential without psilocybin, but experiences something greater and is able to conceptualize something that it couldn't before. But absent the psilocybin mushrooms, maybe it, the, the hominid is not quite so capable, but the knowledge of that thought, that ability that was enabled is now something that is preferred in the species. So people that could recreate that because for it, for example maybe part of their group brain adapted to be able to do that a little bit more naturally or maybe to interface with the mushroom and do that even more effectively under the influence of the mushroom then you know i could see some sort of a complex feedback loop with culture and the biology that enables the advancement of culture um, but some of the a lot of the arguments are rightly criticized in the stoned ape theory. A lot of that is rightly criticized as seeming Lamarckian, right? So just because you can see better and you can, maybe you have escalated libido under the influence of these things, that doesn't necessarily translate to the genes. You need some sort of a mechanism that the, Genetic change that underlies the overall development of your your species uh, can evolve. So just those those changes at the moment that you're ingesting them is not enough. You need you need some sort of advantage that's given afterwards for a mutation to take hold. And so that's where I see potentially a role of magic mushrooms is. Uh, Creating an advantage that wasn't there before, because part of culture now exists that the brain can expand to fill in, for instance. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I almost see these things like a technology that could have been utilized to enhance hunting, gathering. You know, it it almost seems akin to there's certain frog poisons and things that, you know, a lot of cultures, they still take. And it'll just enhance their vision, their perception, their, their hearing when they're going out to hunt. And it's almost like these technologies could be utilized. And
0: it, 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 I'm, are you familiar with uh, morphic resonance by any chance or, or the uh, research? of or uh, just, research? just in passing, yeah. Um, I, I almost wonder if that has any correlation
1: because it's like our, our early ancestors could have learned these certain ways of behaving and then it sort of could have somehow carried over to us just through morphic resonance. I'm not too familiar with the research, but um, it's just an interesting thought anyways, because you're, you're saying how it would translate into the DNA. That's the only way I could see it really happening, um, you know, coming from our ancestors in that sense. Otherwise, it, yeah, I don't really know, did it actually evolve any sort of, you know, was there a DNA evolution there from the mushrooms? You know, that's, again, hard to say, right? So um, that's the only way I could really see it happening, but what are your thoughts on on that at
0: all? So, so I really can't comment on morphic resonance, uh, that sort of thing, but one thing that I wanted to point out is that when something from the outside becomes part of a species, that tends to cause a relaxation of natural selection on uh, on the organism. For instance, a dependency can build, right? So, so in, uh, in a lot of nature, there are symbioses where one organism will acquire a bacteria, for instance, that makes a vitamin that they need to get from their environment. But once that uh, organism has the bacteria that makes the, the vitamin, maybe they'll lose their ability to make it themselves. So I kind of think about those kinds of concepts when I'm thinking about what could the consumption of a psychedelic compound actually cause the human species to gain. It's more likely you know, just without thinking about anything else, that we would become dependent on that at some point in our evolution to be able to have certain types of essential functions, essential thoughts, or. And that could be the basis of cultural evolution along with it, right? So if we, if an important part of our ability to interact with the environment required the mushrooms then we become dependent on the mushrooms as a species. And when that mushroom is lost, because maybe we migrate to another environment, part of our species is lost, right? I see
1: what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so it's almost, it becomes a crutch in a way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and what are your thoughts on, so for instance, if, if you take any sort of psilocybin, does it, does it actually help the development of new, let's say, new, new neural pathways in the brain? So would it help evolve the brain in that sense so that it's not it doesn't so much become a crutch that you have to constantly use, but there's some sort of progression and evolution just merely by taking those substances in that your brain is now able to either repair itself much better or take in new information, retain information, uh, you know, learning functions,
0: things like that. Does it have any impact on that, either in the short or long term from, from your understanding? Uh, I'm not as familiar with that side of... Psychedelic mushrooms, Uh, but I I have seen in the news and in the scientific literature some papers are coming out suggesting that there are uh, The stimulation of certain uh, networks in the brain After after using psychedelics, but I I really am not a neuroanatomist and neurophysiologist So yeah person to comment on that. Yeah, and the reason why I ask,
1: I'm so interested in it, is because I actually take uh, non-psychedelic mushrooms. I take um, shagar, red-free, lion's mane, cordyceps, militaris. I take all of these, and I utilize them as a nootropic to mm-hmm. enhance brain function. I don't get any sort of high from them, but I find my ability to recall is 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 enhanced, um, and just my, my ability to communicate. So I guess that would be in relation to recalling. I can pull words. I can... You know, I don't, I don't get stuttered up as much when I'm, when I'm taking these substances. And, again, they have no psilocybin. They have no uh, psychedelic effects. But so that's why I kind of probe into the, the, the idea or the notion of that they may enhance brain function in some way or help, you know, with synapses or, you know, building
0: neural pathways. Uh, but, again, yes, it's 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 stuff I'm sure that it requires a whole separate conversation that we can get into. Uh, but it's just something interesting I like to, to toy with the idea of. Well, from my perspective, fungi are, I mean, they're chemists, they're crazy chemists, and every species of fungus has a huge array of different chemicals that they make, that they secrete, that you get when you eat them. And, and so every individual mushroom species that you're talking about being used nootropically or through traditional Chinese medicine, they're used very widely. Um, there are different, there's a different set of chemicals, and there's a different blend and combination of chemicals. So so there's lots of different activities that you can be talking about. If you're talking about heresium, lion main, lion's mane mushroom, uh, there, I believe it's a terpenoid that's been isolated from that that um, stimulates nerve growth factor in astroglial cells, which uh, increases the rate of myelination of cells in culture. So I don't know how exactly this translates to clinical clinical work I know I've seen some uh, I've seen some things come across the feeds about uh, trials with for multiple sclerosis uh, with lion's mane mushroom right. But and also know, mushrooms sure. are not monolithic is what I'm trying to say so there's lots of different individual cognitive enhancements suggested um, with with Cordyceps sinensis, Ophiocordyceps sinensis. That's uh, got compounds that are associated with mitigation of fatigue, and then, uh, but there's just a huge diversity that interact with very different parts of your metabolism and cell receptors, and um, so what's happening with hallucinogenic mushrooms seems to be very precisely targeted to a particular kind of neurotransmitter receptor in the brain. And it seems to manifest uh, where those receptors are distributed throughout the brain. They're not just, you know, blended across the brain. They have very specific areas. And then the way that they change the oxygen in the blood at those specific areas tends to change your sense of self. And it tends to change how you integrate um, what you're seeing and taking in from your environment, rather than turning it into an objective view of the world, or as quote unquote objective of view to the work of the world, into something that's much more creative, right? Something that's blending images in novel ways that you see as insights. And so, there's just so much to explore when I look inside the genome of a mushroom, when I look at the chemistry of a mushroom, there's just hundreds and thousands of compounds that many of which have very different kinds of effects. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and do you think that we're just so early on in the research and and just the whole overall development of, of that aspect of even supplementation, as I just kind of alluded to, and do you think that this is something that's going to continue to I mean, in your research, obviously, you're within the field, but you think that it's progressively becoming more and more widely talked about the use of these natural substances. And again, as you mentioned, they all sort of vary in in their application and how they can either help evolve a a human's perception or, um, you know, you even briefly touched on on utilizing these things for different therapies, um, either PTSD, Alzheimer's. Um, So do you think that it's just so early on that having quite reached that that stage yet of understanding? And, and if so, do you foresee within the next five years, 10 years, that this is becoming more of a mainstream, more widely talked about type of thing?
0: I think in some ways, we're very early on. And in some ways, we have thousands of years of human research, I guess you could say, um, backing up what we should be looking at. So. Magic mushrooms have been used for thousands of years. We, we have a pretty good idea of how that interacts with our psyche and, and all of that. And at the same time, there's a huge number of mushrooms that I'm sure you're familiar with that are being marketed based on thousands of years of people experimenting on themselves for the whole mushroom effects, right? Right. Uh, but where we don't know a whole lot is on the individual pieces, the individual chemicals that those mushrooms are producing, and how those chemicals vary from closely related species to another. And maybe, maybe the effects that we're seeing are a result of very specific combinations of chemicals. We we have no idea about that. And the way that our science moves forward in in the West is identifying one compound as having one effect and hopefully not too many side effects itself, but we don't we don't really have a way of looking at the combined effects of multiple chemicals. But as far as are we at the beginning of an explosion of this research, uh, I optimistically say yes, um, because my own research is <laughs> pointing in that direction. I would like to think that You know, the the federal governments will continue to provide research for that. But um, we're also, we've gone through a a period when natural substances have sort of taken a back seat for a while because uh, a lot of compounds were known and just needed to be screened and tested. And then, uh, what was I going to say? They, um, some of them started to fail. Um, certain, for instance, the antidepressants started to, you know, people were reaching tolerance levels and our antibiotics are, you know, getting resistance is building up to them. So we're finding that over all those hundreds of thousands of chemicals that have been tried for different pharmaceutical purposes, that the ones that were the most successful actually came from a natural source, or at least slightly derived from, slightly changed from, a natural source. So it's sort of opening us back up to, oh well, maybe we should be going back and prospecting again, so going back into the rainforest plants. But fungi are a huge unexplored field, and we couldn't really easily investigate them before without the tools that have developed in the last 15 or 20 years. So now we can grow fungus in a in a petri dish, and look in its genome and say, oh, wow, there's probably 20 or 50 novel chemicals here that we never would have known to look for. And we can do, all, there's new technologies developing to find what they are and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think there will be a huge uh, increase in that research.
1: Hmm. And what do you think has caused that, I'm going to call it forgetfulness, especially in our Western civilization forgetfulness of the fact that natural remedies natural medicines things that are deep in the jungle that they can actually be a viable source of healing of therapy versus these things that are formed in a lab and, and I know it's, it's it's heavily a Western thing that's so what do you think has really triggered that forgetfulness and I know it has a lot to do with profit and this and that but why can't these substances be used like, whenever I talk to someone about lion's mane or anything else, it's like they, just, they don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Like, they have absolutely no idea. But if I talk to someone about some opioid, like, a good fraction of people are actually taking the thing, and they don't really know much about it either. So what do you think it is that would have led to, in our particular society, that, that level of forgetfulness, the level of, of not really being deeply rooted in, in the naturalness of, of, you know, plant medicines and things like that?
0: i think there's two main reasons one it's a lot harder to go out and bushwhack and find a new plant and extract and deal with the permissions from the government that you know you're potentially pirating these these biological resources from countries that you know can't necessarily defend themselves from your pharmaceutical uh, interests so so there's that it's it's harder um, but at the same time, and, and you don't know that you're necessarily going to discover anything new when you go out and you do all this work. And the, and the flip side of that is that um, we tend to get wowed by our current technologies, and organic synthesis, you know, got really good, and they got really good at developing all sorts of novel compounds and derivatives. That was much more, uh, you knew what you were going to get, And it was much more prolific, much more diversity. Um, But, you know, when you look back and you see, well, it still seems that nature has already done a lot of this experimentation. And those are the things that are surviving out there now after, you know, billions of years of metabolic evolution. The ones that you see there are the ones that are actually being selected for. Right? So... So there's already a good reason that's been developed over or evolved over billions of years. So I don't think that we necessarily forgot. I think that we were just looking for a newer and better way. And that newer and better way will continue to be with us. We'll continue to use those technologies. But we're starting to re-recognize that evolution does a really good job of discovering new things as well. I think you put it nicely you said we could kind of get wowed or mesmerized by technology.
1: It's like, oh, wow, that not that more convenient or consistent or whatever it may be and easily reproducible. And it's like, we don't have to go to the great extent of, you know, uh, that's the thing too, is it, it's almost like all that was already done by a lot of our ancestors. And even if you go to some other, you know, parts of the world, they just heavily believe in these medicines so much so that that's why I consider it a forgetfulness because all of a sudden you jump over to our part of the world and these people just have no no conception of, of this stuff. So it's almost, it's to me, but they those people would have migrated or their relatives or, you know, ancestors would have emigrated over to those new countries that we're in now in the West. But, uh, you know, their roots and their heritage really is deep in the jungle, really is with these medicines. That's why I just consider it this forgetfulness. And, and I think you're absolutely right you you say people get just so mesmerized by new accomplishments, new technologies that just start to overlook and forget,
0: I'll forget those those old things that, um, you know, don't necessarily, they have results. They, you know, they have good positive impacts on, uh, on humanity. Um, well, I, I think that you're, you're definitely right about the forgetfulness that you're talking about that I wasn't even thinking of. I was thinking of Western, you know, science forgetfulness. But but you're right when the culture of the world tends to homogenize over the dominant, you know, the dominant trends and indigenous cultures are eroded and indigenous knowledge is lost uh, so that's sort of more of a species level forgetfulness mm-hmm. that is is a whole lot graver i think is something that you're bringing up
1: there and you
0: yeah. think about that a lot
1: but i think these these things that were like these conversations we're having i think this is triggering something it, it's triggering uh, triggering something that's allowing people to be more receptive to these things and they don't just necessarily have to flick open the news and see some new drug that's being advertised to them and immediately pick up their phone to buy that drug or go get a prescription for it. I think that a lot of people are turning to conversations such as this to better educate themselves or at least allow themselves to delve that deeper into, you know, these particular topics so they can make their own educated decisions. It's almost like it's developing more of a critical thinking type of society versus, you know, just people that are just gonna buy into whatever they're being told and, you know, a lot of times those those chemical substances made in labs, they have a lot of side effects. They have a lot of uh, you know, things that could be detrimental long-term for an individual, and it's not really talked about or considered much. And then I look at these natural uh, plant medicines and I just think that they they don't have these types of side effects. I, I, just, I, I always try to guide people in the direction of natural remedies as opposed to the ones that you can typically get in the lab. But in some cases, those lab ones are just fine. It's, uh, yeah, just, I just lean more towards the natural approach.
0: I I would urge some caution, however, um, as somebody who looks inside of the chemistry and the genomes of a lot of different fungi, and I see people experimenting with a species, a particular species of fungus, that was used in China for a thousand years. uh, And that Chinese variety may have, you know, very well-known therapeutic effects. However, within that same species, in another continent, the chemistry could be extremely different. So when we go and we apply the knowledge of you know, a Taoist in China from a thousand years ago to a species that's endemic to you know, Georgia in the United States, and we start consuming them as though they're the same thing, we really have to be careful because they're not. There's, there's some diversity in that it may or may not have a consequence. So... I I would urge people to be careful with just experimenting with Mm -hmm. a lot of different fungi.
1: And what do you think would be the main driving force of that differentiating factor between it being this way in one place in the world and then being entirely different in another area of the world? Is it it just sharing the environment?
0: Well, it's it's a basic evolutionary principle where things that are separated by a long period of time will tend to evolve differently and They'll tend to evolve differently just by random chance, but they'll also tend to evolve differently because they are in a different environment and different chemicals will be of use when you're dealing with plant X, Y, and Z than when you're dealing with plant A, B, and C. So there, there's, there's lots of reasons why things that have been on different continents for 10 million years will tend to e- evolve to have different chemistry. And
1: kind of on that note, I wanted to touch on the fungi that would have been contained in cow feces, uh, Mm -hmm. specifically. Because I'm actually, um, I do a lot of uh, religious research and uh, specifically around Hinduism as well. And they seem to have this reverence of the the cow in in, in a lot of animals in different cultures and different uh, religious belief systems that I almost wonder if it has any sort of connection to the fact that These fungi, which would produce these, I mean, if they were to consume it, they would produce these visions or, you know, uh, they'd have these effects on on these particular cultures and societies. Do you think that that the religious, and I know it's not your field in particular, but do you think that there would be any connection between that religious or spiritual side and just the mere fact that the fungi is, it does come up in in the feces. Do you think that there could have, they could have become revered, the cow could have become revered in this sense, and I'm sure many other animals as well, because the humans had this, this connection, they, they felt through the fungi that was coming from this particular species.
0: That was definitely an important cornerstone of Terence McKenna's argument, I believe, was that the cow was part of the, the magical ritual uh, evolution that he was describing. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, mean, I think his argument and that argument in general could just as easily be made that the cow was the direct source of their entire life, right? Yes, it also included their religious sacrament. So it was more of an entire ecosystem that was essential to their, their being. They were absolutely dependent on the migrating herds that they were following. And, and the rest of their environment may have changed. You know, the climate shifted a little bit and they moved to another area and things changed, but they, they at least were... For tens or hundreds of thousands of years—maybe not hundreds of thousands, but for many thousands of years—they were, you know, tightly linked with a, a clear set of species that the cow was one of. Mm-hmm. But you'll also see, you'll also see mushrooms in ancient uh, imagery as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so yeah.
0: the role of mushroom isn't—it's not like it's neglected. We don't have to. Uh, Speculate that the cow is because of the mushroom. The mushroom is already there, mm. uh, but yeah, I think the cow is probably important enough on its own.
1: Right. I, I like how you kind of uh, just focus on the fact that it, everything revolved around that. so them, like their food sources, and I'm sure just the the mushroom aspect of that was just one small fraction of it. And and the the mushroom being depicted in a lot of religious imagery, it is interesting. You you could all, a lot of people have broken down these um, circles that are above a lot of these. Uh, Angels and whatnot. It's almost the like a mushroom cap, you know, like it's, it's being, but it's it looks like a crown in a way. So it's really interesting. Some of these these religious images that they kind of allude to but very vaguely the fact that there was somehow psychedelic mushrooms involved in helping this individual have these, you know, these uh, visions or these insights. Um, so different on, you
0: know, mycologists are uh, they. <laughs> they violently defend one side or the other of some of that imagery. Yeah, so in know. Instance, the, the, the mushroom tree of life, you know, there's, there's two opposing positions on that. And I'm personally not going to wade too deep in it. <laughs> I don't take a position whether or not the, uh, the little Amanita Muscaria cap looking things were communion or whether they were actually Amanita Muscaria or perhaps they were both. Right? Maybe, maybe there was some sort of syncretic uh, origin of them, but um, I'm open to all possibilities of that, and I'm not going to stake a claim on <laughs> how much of the mushroom imagery in Gnostic Christianity, for instance, is real and how much we're imagining. Because it is fun to imagine um, that it, it was really important, but maybe it's not always true. Well, it's good to be kind of neutral in that sense, but
1: definitely open to the idea and the notion of it. And yeah, it's really hard to kind of go one way or another with that stuff, but uh, it is fun to play with. <laughs> I wanted to ask your um, your opinion or your take on how psilocybin or psilocin can actually impact serotonin within the brain. And um, yeah, if you just touched on that briefly.
0: Well, sure. So I like to think of it in terms of feedback so if serotonin receptors are being bound up with psilocybin, then they're not going to be able to um, acquire serotonin molecule to bind to. And serotonin transporters and breakdown pathways, they're also going to be sort of blocked by uh, psilocybin, which may bind actually even better to these different machines inside of your nerve cells. So the response, the feedback to that, is going to be, well, there's too much serotonin. So the de- if there's some sort of a prolonged exposure there, you could imagine that the levels of serotonin would drop. And this can be pronounced in in different uh, drugs that act on serotonin receptors. You can see a, a really steep drop in the day or two after. Um, you tripped you can see a steep drop in serotonin levels and they eventually recover once you've metabolized out all those uh, agonists Um, some uh, serotonin like molecules can actually lead to a serotonin syndrome where you can't break down any of the serotonin you can't reabsorb or break down any of the serotonin you have like a serotonin syndrome from too much serotonin there uh, and it, it can actually lead to really tragic outcomes. But with the classical hallucinogens, that's not really a problem. That seems to be with some of the synthetic ones that work much more effectively, I guess you'd say, or much, they have a much stronger activity. So eventually you build a tolerance to them. So psychedelics, you tend to not be able to reuse frequently because your body finds a way of getting around this particular agonist either that produces more uh, transporters and receptors to compensate or uh, this that sort of thing so there's your body can it's a very complex system with a lot of other feedback so just because you perturb it that way doesn't mean that it can't overcome it but you are perturbing it, and you uh-huh. got to consider that.
1: It's <laughs> huh. a good way of looking at it, yeah. Um, so where is your, your research now, or what, what's your research primarily focused around right now? In 2019, basically. What, what are you focusing on?
0: Well, we, we do a lot of different things, and they all really tend to focus on the evolution of chemicals that fungi either make or they break down that enables them to Do things in the environment, and they do so many things in the environment that we're interested in. They're really important to protecting plants. They're a big part of the immune system of a plant. Is the fungi that live inside of leaves and inside of stems? So a plant can rely on fungi that it sort of almost cultivates to make a much more diverse uh, chemical defense system. So we we look at that as one of our main projects what chemicals fungi can make when they're inside of a plant and how they do that. And we're also looking at horizontal transfer of those abilities between different fungi that have the same sort of uh, effect on the plants. And, And a lot of, we're interested in a lot of the important compounds that we've derived from plants that tend to either we find out they're actually made by the fungus themselves, or they're made both by the fungus and by the plant. For instance, uh, quinine, you know, is like one of the most important chemicals to come out of the rainforests from the cinchona plants. Relative of coffee, it makes quinine. Uh, both the tree and the fungus that live inside, in some cases, make the exact same compound. So you don't have to kill the tree, you don't have to harvest the tree if you've got a fungus that you can grow up that makes it. Uh, and if we had known that 100 years ago, <laughs> you know, we would have saved a lot of species in the rainforest. So we're, we're interested in that, that, the chemistry of fungi that live inside plants that give them their immunity. But we're also on the animal side of things. We're interested in how uh, fungi produce compounds that mimic neurotransmitters that we share with insects I and mean, a lot of our neuro- our neurochemistry uh, goes way back you know maybe a billion years in the evolution of animals so that we can we can track compounds that uh, somehow inhibit the feeding of worms or inhibit the feeding of flies and the effect that they have is possibly exactly the same I won't say exactly the same but it's possibly the same at a very Tiny level at a very microscopic level and that may translate into good leads on what would make a good um, neuroactive drug, a neuroactive pharmaceutical. So we're we're trying to find out how different fungi make chemicals that influence the behavior of insects. Um, We work with cordyceps uh, species trying to figure out how they, you know, secrete compounds that interact with insect nervous systems, make them position themselves in the right way. Uh, and, and yeah. Basically, how do, how and why do they make the chemicals that they do? How did it evolve?
1: So I think you answered my, my follow-up question that was, what what will then be done with that research? But well, you kind of addressed some of it, and that obviously you can save a rainforest because you don't have to go around chopping down everything if you built that what you need is contained in these fungi so I want to ask you what do you think your main hurdles are if any that you've been experiencing or hiccups or just have you hit any walls in your research that's preventing I guess an, an expedited is there anything that's slowing you down anything that's holding you back from achieving more like getting more information out of your research is there is there any hurdles that you're encountering so far is it kind of steady
0: the whole way through nothing is steady in science especially when <laughs> you're doing something i consider our work pretty pioneering in some ways Yeah, definitely. Yeah. so some of the things that we run into are just we we work with fungi that maybe nobody has ever worked with before so we try to grow them in the lab and get out their dna well they actually you can't get their dna out very easily so you have to develop a new way of getting out their dna uh the other the other side of things, maybe I've I've mentioned this before is uh, when we work on the neurochemistry side of things, we're we don't have permissions to go very far in the uh, characterization of certain molecules because they're prohibited substances. So there's uh, regulatory hurdles. Um, at some point, if we end up working with something that produces a fair amount of psilocybin, for instance, or an analog, I'll have to, in order to continue to work with my fungus, I will have to uh, get extensive permission, uh, which can set us back in time. Um, fortunately, a, a lot of the work that we do, uh, we know so much before we, you know, we have to get back into the lab and test our hypotheses, because there's so much to learn from the genomes that we don't, we don't really get held back there. Um, but then it's then it's just manpower and brainpower <laughs> You know, you, you, there's only so many hours a day to investigate These things
1: and, and your team. I assume it's a team you're working with how many individuals are, are putting their heads together to work on this?
0: There are four graduate students in my lab and they each have different projects that they're working on a couple work on insect associated fungi couple work on plant-associated fungi, and everybody has different methodological techniques that they share with each other. So we're, we're really a, we're a very small team. Uh, I would say we're the smallest, but as far as uh, scientific research teams, we're on the small side. So we have to function lean and mean. We don't have millions of dollars coming in from the NIH. So, so we have to pick our battles and really pool our resources to accomplish each task along the way
1: mm-hmm. that makes sense and if anyone's listening to this watching this that's interested in getting involved in, in the research maybe they're a teenager they're getting into college university where would you guide them in which direction if they, if they had a passion about this type of stuff and they wanted to pursue it further how would you direct this particular individual uh
0: in my field of research i think Probably the best two tools to develop are computer programming, Um, any kind at all, because everything is going to big data, high-throughput data analyses, Um, from the chemistry to the genomes to the evolution to the ecology. It's all going... If you can write a computer program, you're going to learn a whole lot more, a whole lot faster. And then... It's it's really just basic biology. Can you can you learn the learn the genetics and the cell biology to be able to follow up on your passion? Uh, I wouldn't get into my area if you weren't already really passionate about fungus. I think it's it can be easy to get somebody passionate about mushrooms, but uh, that passion is really needed in our field.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine any any science field. I'm sure lots of passion because i'm I'm, is it a slow profit does it appear to be a slow process i mean the day-to-day of the whole thing you're not making major discoveries each day but you may be sort of building those little bricks of that huge wall that um you know could be kind of finishing you know those five years time do you find that the day-to-day is a little bit slow and that's why you really have to have that passion and that drive
0: yeah that's definitely part of it uh for me, I'm in an assistant professor position and a big part of what I do is administrative and advising and teaching. So I have a much smaller part of my life that I can devote to the research, but the research is really what you know drives me forward, you know, gets me back to work is, are we going to figure this out? Are we going to make this discovery? Was I right about this hypothesis? Um, but, you know... Until you get to, you know, a principal investigator stage, uh, you can focus on the research almost entirely, and and that's really a great a great place to be in. But it's a long road. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you for taking the time today. I actually don't have any other questions at this time, but uh,
1: I'm sure we'll have another chat again soon. And I'll check in for your time. I like that. I got your website bookmarked as well, so. I have to read up on some of those uh, articles you've been producing. It's really good stuff. Did you have any closing thoughts for anyone listening to this that you wanted to share or anything that you wanted to uh, plug, any research you're doing, any upcoming articles, uh,
0: anything? No, just uh, remind people to, that the uh, the fungi are there all around you. They're a um, very important part of the world. They're an important part of biodiversity. So just keep them in mind. <laughs> I guess that's... One plug I'll make for fungi.
1: Yeah, you're plugging fungi. Perfect. Well, thank you for taking the time again. And uh, again, I'll include all the information down in the description of this uh, episode for people to have a look and
0: delve deeper into this whole topic because I think it's really fascinating. So thank you again, and uh, have yourself a great day. Thanks for having me, Adam. You too.